You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Tuesday, February 27th. I'm Bailey Reese from Drake University. Here is our first story. Our first headline reads, Pelshaw puts soul into her mural by David Golbitz. Guatemalan-born artist Ailaman Pelshaw may have worked as a graphic designer in her native country, but in her heart, she has always been an artist. There's a lot of soul that you can put in your pieces that is like an extension of yourself. Like a self-expression, Pelshaw told the nonpareil. It, it has a self-expression element that graphic design don't have. When Pelshaw attended University Universidad Rafael Landifar in the late 1990s, the private Jesuit university didn't offer degrees in art or art history. So she had to major in something more practical like graphic design or architecture. That was always what I loved to do, but in Guatemala, at least back then, it was not realistic to live from art, Pelshaw said. If you were creative, you had just a few options at university. Pelshaw said she chose graphic design over architecture because I don't like math. While she sometimes regrets that she wasn't able to formally study art, her graphic design background has been helpful, particularly when she decided to become a full-time artist in 2017. I see a lot of benefits of being a graphic designer and all the knowledge on digital things that are needed now in the art world, Pelshaw said. Like, I produce all my material. I do my business cards. If I need any, anything, visual or marketing, I can make that. And also, a lot of my designs before I paint them, especially murals. I see a lot of benefits of being a graphic designer and all the knowledge on digital things that are needed now in the art world, Pelshaw said. Like, I produce all my material. I do my business cards. If I need any anything, visual or marketing, I can make that. And also, a lot of my designs before I paint them, especially murals. I do everything digital first. And that helps me with my clients because they can see a pretty clear idea of what they will obtain. When Pelshaw moved to Omaha in 2015, she left behind her graphic design clients in Guatemala and began to focus more on her artwork, though she found it difficult to define her own style at first. I was so used to creating in, in order to please the client, Pelshaw said. I remember doing a lot of different styles when I was working as an illustrator. Pelshaw recalled one client who asked her to create an illustration that resembled the style of Colombian artist Fernando Botero, whose art is very distinctive. All his paintings are about fat people or fat animals, and the client was this brand that was promoting, like, packagings to lose weight, and they wanted to use Botero, but they didn't have the budget to license a Botero. So they wanted me to paint something very similar that people would maybe think about Botero, but it's not Botero, Pelshaw said. At the time, Pelshaw saw the request as an interesting challenge, though since she has realized how offensive that request is to an artist. But it created in me kind of like this uncertainty on what your style is because you have done so many things that look so different one to another. She said, I think that I'm still figuring out what I really want to do, but I managed to narrow it down to maybe three main lines. On her website, Pelshaw has multiple examples of the different styles she is wrestling with. She painted a series of cartoon-like pop art portraits of animals holding coffee mugs. She noted, because Guatemala is a producer of coffee, and coffee is a part of our culture. All your relationships and everything around, around you is coffee. And she has all series of geometric 
and she has a series of geometric paintings, all straight lines and sharp angles, while her third style is a little more abstract, with bold designs and colors. I'm still figuring out because I love to jump from one style to another, maybe because that was how I was trained, but I know that for an artist, it is important to have a recognizable style or a recognizable brand, Pelshaw said. Maybe in the future I will narrow it even better than just three main styles and combine all those elements to create one more distinctive style. For her mural along the First Avenue Trail, it appears as though Pelshaw successfully synthesized her three styles into one wall-spanning image. When she submitted her design for what would become her First Avenue mural, Pelshaw knew that the property owner of 15 and a half South 20th Street wanted something focused on the history of Council Bluffs. The building where my painting is used to be World Radio, the building where my painting is used to be World Radio Lab Laboratories, and apparently that company put Council Bluffs on the map back then when it, with this amazing technology, Pelshaw said. World Radio Lab Laboratories manufactured radio equipment for amateur radio enthusiasts from the 1930s through the 70s, with a brief hiatus during World War II to grind crystals for radios for the war effort. Pelshaw utilized geometric shapes and bright pop art colors to bring her mural, The Fabric of Council Bluffs, to life. All the different sections of the mural and the geographic shapes are like the fabric of Council Bluffs, Pelshaw said. Like how Council Bluffs is built with all these different people, these different personalities, and we wanted to show, we wanted to somehow unconsciously let everybody know first that the community is built by everybody and everybody should belong. And the other thing is, we should be willing to be side by side and create this community together. So that was the meaning of all these geometric shapes in different colors. In addition to the WRL radio tower, Pelshaw's mural also includes a gold spike to represent Council Bluff's status as mile zero for the nation's first transcontinental railroad, a silhouette of the Bob Carey pedestrian bridge, the looking up statue at River's Edge, the Lois Hills, the Missouri River, and a streetcar to represent both the city's past and perhaps its future. There was one element that Pelshaw had included in her initial design that didn't make it into the finished piece, a likeness of Abraham Lincoln due to the 16th president role in starting the transcontinental railroad in Council Bluffs. But that was the only thing that they suggested me to remove because they didn't want anything political or maybe controversial that would cause people to not like the mural, Pelshaw said. Pelshaw isn't new to designing murals, though the First Avenue painting is one of her largest to date. The difference with a mural is a normal painting is that, in a normal painting, is that my paintings usually don't pass 48 inches, Pelshaw said. This mural was 110 feet wide, so that is the complication because everything is just massive and you need to figure out, like, we had to use scaffolds and I need to be climbing the scaffolding and it's challenging and then that wall doesn't have a shade any time of day so we had the sun in our faces all the time another difference between painting a portrait and a mural is that painting a mural is much more social than working alone in a studio i do like the aspect of getting to know a lot of people pelshaw said it was so interesting that everybody that passed away when we were painting were so kind and that, that passed by when we were painting we're so kind and friendly and chatty. That is a beautiful part of doing a mural. And then working with a lot of my friends painting, I make a point to try not to 
paint by myself, just in case you need a hand for something, especially when you are climbing a scaffold. So I was always painting with someone else, and that is fun. For more information about the First Avenue murals, visit tinyurl.com slash firstavmurals. To see more of Pelshaw's art, visit, visit ilaamen.com. Moving on to more local news. Kern students recognized for catching president's attention with a letter by Scott Stewart from the Nonpareil. There's a picture here of students at a table, um, seemingly giggly or whispering to one another. Um, from the left, it shows Jalen Hugh, uh, Emma LaFerla, and Penny Driscoll reacting to a video showing that they received a letter from President Joe Biden after they wrote to the White House about equal pay as part of their international um, project last school year. Jalen Hugh wore a simple black t-shirt under a hooded sweatshirt to school Friday with three words printed on them. Nevertheless, she persisted. Her shirt's feminist slogan refers to a comment by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in reference to a vote blocking Senator Elizabeth Warren from speaking during the confirmation of Jeff Sessions to U.S. Attorney General in February 2017. McConnell's remark followed the vote, noting Warren continued despite warning and it became a rally cry, a rallying cry for breaking barriers. Jalen's t-shirt from Ray Gunn is a fundraiser for She Could Run She Should Run, a nonpartisan nonprofit that seeks to increase the number of women seeking public office at all levels. The current middle school sixth grader was part of a trio that wrote to President Joe Biden at the end of the last school year, requesting that the White House take action to close the gender pay gap in the United States. The letter was the, the action-taking step of their international baccalaureate ex exhibition project at College View Elementary School. We've recently learned a lot about gender pay gap, they said in a handwritten letter to Biden. We've become very interested and would love to have this changed. We were wondering if you would consider taking action on this cause. The letter gave examples of the pay gap between men and women. We really want you to try to help this, the Council Bluff students told the president. Jalen was recognized alongside former, fellow former College View students, Emma LaFerla and Penny Driscoll, with a brief ceremony Friday afternoon in Kern. They were shown a video about their IB project and the letters exchanged with the White House before being presented with the framed copies of the letter signed by Biden. In this letter, Biden thanked the girls for reaching out. Every girl deserves the chance to grow up in a world with the opportunity to realize her full potential and the freedom to live out her dreams, the president wrote. But too often, women and girls, especially women and girls of color, face discrimination and other barriers that hold them back. Biden re referenced some of the steps he's taken related to gender e equity, including equal pay. In the U.S., women who work full-time year-round are paid an average of 83.7 cents for every dollar earned by men, a difference of $10,000 per year on average, according to the U.S. Department of Labor. Equal Pay Today, a project at Gender Justice Group Equal Rights Advocates, says that this year's Equal Pay Day will be March 12th. That's the day that the average woman has to work until to earn the same as a man did in 2023, based on 2022 earnings data, according to EqualPayDay.com. There are additional observances for Equal Pay Day for specific groups, such as June 13th for LGBTQ plus women, July 9th for black women, August 7th for mothers, August, October 7th for Latina earners, and November 21st for Native American women. 
It will take all of us to create a society worth of every little girl's dreams and talents. And I know we can do it together, Biden said. College View principal Amy Anderson said IB exhibition is in its 10th year in Council Bluffs. Aaron Schoening, IB program lead at College View, said exhibition is done at all IB schools across the school, providing a culminating activity. Exhibition is a student-led research project, Schoen said. Jordan Preston, a fifth-grade teacher and classroom strategist at College View, said IB stressed, we learned this, so we did this, with learning opening the door to meaningful change. We want our learning to guide us towards some sort of action, Preston said. Jalen said, IB exhibition is an opportunity for students to make a difference in the world. The next headline reads, Local Lawmakers Talk AEAs at Coffee by David Goldblitz, the nonpareil. The opening picture shows State Senator Dan Dawson as he discusses a number of topics at the Council Bluffs Area Chamber of Commerce Legislative Coffee on Saturday, February 24th, 2024, at Wilson Middle School. Local lawmakers discussed perhaps the most contentious issue facing the Iowa legislature during the Council Bluffs Area Chamber of Commerce's first legislative coffee of the year on Saturday. Governor Kim Reynolds proposed an overhaul last month of the state's area education agencies, which has sparked criticism and concern, along with efforts to advance the reforms. I had AEA services that helped me out enormously, and I will never support a bill that will reduce services to special education, State Representative Josh Turek, a Democrat, told the audience about 50 people of about 50 people at Wilson Middle School. It seemed like the predominant issue that the governor was bringing forth was test scores, Turek said. I think particularly disingenuous, disingenuous because if we're talking about children with special needs, even the determination on test scores, I don't think is necessarily the greatest metric on determined future success. It should be levels of independent living, levels of employment, things of that nature. As the sole permanently disabled member of the legislature, Tarek has a unique perspective when it comes to the disabled community. However, he was not alone Saturday in his criticism of the governor's AEA proposal. I think the governor would admit the rollout of this was absolutely atrocious, said State Representative Brent Sechrist. She didn't talk to anybody in the AEA system. She didn't talk to any parents. So this blew up hugely, as we know. I mean, I literally had 1,000 emails, and so it was poorly handled. Segrist, a Republican who ran the state's AEAs for nearly 15 years before returning to the state house, agrees that there is room for improvement in the way that the agencies operate. But he said that the current proposed legislation isn't the way to do it. There are things that can be done and should be done, and I think maybe we'll get there, Seacrest said. The test scores, though, are what's driving this all. Test scores are a poor, are poor indicator of success with special education students because each student has their own individual education plan, Seacrest said. What we do is try to get them off their IEP, Seacrest said. In Iowa, there's three ways you can do this. You can teach the test if you want to have good test, or, test, test scores, or you can say, let's try to get that child off the IEP and move them on to a more productive career. Or thirdly, are we preparing them for an occupation after they get out of school? They may not be college bound, but are we preparing them? Seegers said that when students are taken off their IEPs, they are removed from the testing group, which leads to lower test scores. 
You take your highest performing kids out of the testing group, and then you test the kids that haven't gotten their IEPs. You're going to have naturally lower scores, Seeger said. So the scores are too low, yes, but there's a reason for that, because we're doing it the right way. We're trying to make those kids produ productive citizens. State Senator da Dan Dawson, a Republican, also agrees that while something does need to be done, the proposed legislation is a non-starter, particularly the idea of putting the Iowa Department of Education in charge of the AEAs. The initial bill was always going to be dead in the Senate, just from the pure aspect of the Department of Education does not have the best track record with le legislatures, and that's Republican, Democrats, you talk to them across the board, we have some reservations, Dawson said. Having the Department of Education hire 139 additional employees isn't a solution, he said. We have people with bills to eliminate the DE here in the state of Iowa, Dawson said. Building out that kind of infrastructure, which that's a substantial hiring increase, is nothing that's going to pass political muster in the legislature. Another topic of concern was Senate File 2374, a measure that would change the way labor union contracts with governmental agencies are certified. When a labor union negotiates a contract, the union goes through a certification process in which at least 51% of the union members have to agree that they want to maintain the union, according to Dawson. For the certification vote to occur, the employer is supposed to turn over a list of union members to the state's Political Employment Relations Board, which is the organization that runs his certification vote. Currently, if an employer doesn't turn over the list to the PERB, a vote cannot be held and the contract is automatically approved. Under the bill, if the employer doesn't provide the list of union members to the PERB, the union becomes decertified, which opponents of the bill say is punishing the union for the employer's bad action. It would then be incumbent upon the union members to take the employer to court to get the list sent to the PERB so a vote could be held. I don't understand why, if the issue is on the employers, why we would hurt the members. That doesn't make sense to me, Turek said. As well, it seems like we're, all we're going to end up doing is just clogging up the courts with this issue. Turek said that, should it pass, the bill would particularly hurt smaller unions because of the court cost invo costs involved. It just seems like a way to hurt unions and to hurt labor ultimately, Turek said. We call it a labor-killing bill, and that's what I think the intention is. Each of the three lawmakers in attendance urged citizens to contact them with any concerns. Ultimately, we work for you guys, and really, genuinely, the advocacy does work, Turek said. Particularly with the AEA bill, you're seeing that. So thank you for getting involved, and if you have any concerns, please reach out. The Chamber's next legislative coffee is scheduled for Saturday, March 16th, at Wilson Middle School at 9 a.m. They are open to the public. This next art article is from the Midlands Humane Society. Mark your calendars for annual gala by Mars... Mariah Garcia. You're invited to the most possum party of the year, the Midlands Humane Society Annual Gala. This gathering of animal lovers, fundraising for the thousands of animals that come through the doors of MHS every year, is an event you don't want to miss. Join us on Friday, May 10th at the Mid-America Center in Council Bluffs for a perfect night, celebrating the animals that enriched our lives and fill our hearts. Night kicks off at 5 p.m. with a social hour where guests can browse hundreds of silent auction items, purchase wine or a coveted golden ticket, and interact with several ambassador animals. Following a social hour, 
Following Social Hour is a delicious dinner buffet, captivating program, heartfelt video, and a fun-filled live auction. Tickets are now available for purchase on the Midlands Humane Society website at midlandshumanesociety.org events. Individual tickets are $65, or you can purchase a table of 10 for $6.50. We are currently seeking sponsors for this event. There are six levels of sponsorship, sponsorship ranging from $350 to $10,000, with varying benefits and levels of recognition at the event and beyond. MHS Gala sponsorships are an excellent way to show others your support um, for helping the homeless animals in our community who are waiting to find their happily ever after. If you would like to support the gala or future events by donating new items for our silent auction, we are currently seeking items for the following categories. Dining and entertainment, his or hers, home and garden, outings and experiences and pets, and all donations are tax deductible and funds are raised, funds are raised, all the funds raised go toward the animals at MHS. Items can be dropped off or mailed to MHS at 1020 Railroad Avenue, Council Bluffs, Iowa, 51503, during business hours. For any questions on sponsorships, auction donations, or general inquiries, contact me at M. Garcia at Midlands, Mid, MidlandsHumaneSociety.org or 712-396-2264. Stay up to date on all things gala on the MHS website or by following Midlands Humane Society on Facebook. There's an image on this article, four images of four different dogs um, with captions moon Jonathan, Emma, and Sheldon. Um, next, we'll move on within this article to the uh, MHS Pets of the Week. Moon is a one-and-a-half-year-old neutered male, border collie slash Springer Spaniel mix with a vibrant personality and plenty of energy to spare. He will benefit from an active family who can keep him busy and focus on his continued obedience training. Jonathan is a one-and-a-half-year-old lab slash poodle mix that is happy it's a very, he's a very happy-go-lucky dude that is ready to become your BFF. He is full of energy and will make a great addition to any active home, ready to bring him along on all the adventures. He is very sweet, very affectionate dog that will be a great companion for any home willing to continue basic obedience training. Emma is a four-and-a-half-year-old spayed female, Boromol Mix, who is extremely sweet Loves attention and shows it by wagging her little nub tail so fast it makes her whole body wiggle. She would love to find a home with giant breed experience to help her continue her journey in life. She has done well with other dogs, but she is still a bit shy and needs some confidence building being around them. Sheldon is an eight-year-old neutered male, shepherd mix, who will be a very loyal companion. He can be a bit shy when meeting new people and craves routine and familiarity, he will need some extra reassurance that he won't be moved again, and that just means extra cuddles and bonding time for his family. MHS is open weekdays from noon to 6 p.m. and Saturdays from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Check out our available pets online by visiting our website at midlandshumanesociety.org adopt. This next article is titled Initiative Awards Grants to Nonprofits. Intelligent Community Initiative announced strengthening families and communities. 
social determinants of health grants to, ni- to 18 nonprofits totaling $1,017,252 across Iowa, Illinois, Oklahoma, and Colorado. Since 2014, TCI has funded more than $15.9 million in community-based support to nearly 400 projects in the states served by Telogen, according to a news release. In this cycle of the grant program, TCI focused on supporting nonprofits who are working to decrease health disparities and create innovative solutions to increase physical, mental, and social health and well-being for families as well as youth, TCI's executive director, Matt McGarvey, said. At $75,000, a $75,000 grant went to Family Incorporated in Council Bluffs. The funding will go to its Healthy Pregnancy Program, which provides education and support to low-income pregnant individuals to ensure healthy babies and reduce maternal mortality in the maternity care desert. At $20,505, a grant went to to Visiting Nurse Association of Pottawatomie County. The funding will go to its home and shelter-based parenting support programs, which strengthened children and families through a multi-generational focus on maternal and child health, preventing prevention of abuse and neglect, child development and school readiness, parenting skills, and family self-sufficiency. Other Iowa grants went to Iowa Black Doula Collective, $63,200, the Catherine McCauley Center in Cedar Rapids, $28,810, and Lutheran Services in Iowa, $25,000. Moving on to the next article, Clorinda Legion Hall Damaged by Kent Dinnebeyer of the Southwest Iowa Herald. Uh, there's an image here at the top of the article, um, black and white. It features a couple firefighters climbing on top of a brick wall. Um, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven firefighters in the frame. Flames were seen shooting out from the roof of the American Legion Sergi Post 98 building in Clarinda. The Clarinda Volunteer Fire Department responded to the fire at 12.42 a.m. February 18th. The American Legion building was vacant, but the Indaclar Recreation Parlor located immediately to the west had been evacuated. It was a better outcome than we thought it could be when we first arrived, Clorinda Fire Chief Roger Williams told the Southwest Iowa Herald. There were no injuries in the fire. Williams said that the American Legion suffered fire, smoke, and water damage. The the Indaclar, meanwhile, sustained smoke damage and ventilation vans were used to clear the smoke from the business. When they said they could see fire coming out of the roof, I assumed it was going to be a lot more serious than it turned out to be, Sergi Post 98 Commander Dave Grebert said. I thought the whole thing was probably gone. Williams said the Clorinda Fire Department was able to bring the fire under control in about 45 minutes. Given the challenges created by the age of the building, Williams said he, he was proud of the work done by the firefighters. Like many of the older buildings in town, it has been remodeled several times, Williams said. So there were three different ceilings our guys had to get through to actually get to the fire. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Tuesday, February 27th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Bailey Reese from Drake University. IRIS volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any IRIS program, Please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 515-243-6833.
Today we have two obituaries to read. The first is for Crystal K. Farr and Cork. December 5th, 1963 to February 20th, 2024. Crystal K. Farr and Cork, age 60, of Omaha, passed away peacefully on February 20th of 2024, with her husband Anthony by her side, after a courageous two-year battle with cancer. Crystal was born on December 5th, 1963, in Council Bluffs to Martha Clayton Killen of Macedonia. She graduated from Trainer High School and attended Iowa State University, where she and her future husband, Anthony, began dating. Crystal and Anthony were united in marriage on October 3, 1992, with a spirited reception at Lakeshore Country Club, with an adventurous honeymoon in San Diego and the Baja of Mexico. That trip would be the cornerstone of a lifetime of travels together. Crystal spent most of her successful work career in pharmaceutical sales with several global giants, including Bayer, Johnson & Johnson, and her final 19 years with Bowringer Ingelheim before retiring on February 1st of 2023. Crystal loved traveling. In her short time on Earth, Crystal was able to visit 24 countries. She and Anthony spent well over 500 nights in dreamy, tropical destinations and would seek out locations off the beaten path with desolate beaches and hidden waterfalls. She enjoyed all things nature, spending time outdoors, birdwatching, and was a talented gardener. She was a wonderful cook and loved hosting parties for friends and family and had some highly sought-after cookie recipes. Crystal was a proud member of Champions Run Country Club and, for years, was a well-recognized member of the Ladies' League. Crystal is survived by her husband of 31 years, Anthony, mother, Martha Killen, brother, Clayton Killen, sister, Kim Barry Coffelt, and numerous nieces, nephews, extended family, and friends. A visitation with family and friends will be held on Thursday, February 29th, from 4 to 7 p.m. at Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Funeral Home in Council Bluffs. A memorial service will be held at 10 a.m. on Friday, March 1st, at the funeral home, followed by a luncheon at the Council Bluffs Country Club. In lieu of flowers, memorials are suggested to the Crystal Ferengrog Memorial Fund, care of the Community Foundation for Western Iowa, 536 East Broadway, Con Council Bluffs, Iowa, 51503. Our next obituary is for Claudia Peterson, May 19, 1945 to February 24th, 2024. Claudia M. Peterson, age 78, passed away at Jenny Edmondson Hospital on February 24th, 2024. She was born May 19th, 1945, to the late Claude and Iva May Fisher Kroger in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Claudia graduated from Abraham Lincoln High School with the class of 1963 and retired from CHI Mercy Hospital in the Human Resources Office. Claudia is survived by her husband of 58 years, Donald Peterson, children, Tracy, Michael, and Craig Peterson, grandchildren, Clayton Michael, Carly Michael, Dakota Peterson, Dalen Peterson, and Dawson Peterson, great-grandchildren, Marlon Michael, Warren Michael, Ellis Michael, and Blythe Michael. Viewing and visitation will be held from 4 to 6 p.m. at Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home, on Friday, March 1st, 2024. In lieu of flowers, memorials are suggested to the Crescent Volunteer Fire Department. Now we will be moving on to local sports. Trainer Toughness, Cardinals return to state for first time since 2020 by Peter Burtnett of the Nonpareil. 
There's an image here at the top of this article of uh, a team in white uh, raising their IHSSAA flag, um, saying that they did um, make it to the championship once again. Um, Trainer celebrates their 71-63 win over Grandview Christian in the 2A7 Substate Final at West Central Valley High School on Saturday. Boys at 2A Substate Final. Stewart, a clutch shot from a former water boy and physically led trainer back to the state tournament for the first time since 2020 with a 71-63 win over Grandview Christian. With two minutes and seven seconds left in the game, just four minutes earlier, the Cardinals had taken their first lead since the first quarter. Four lead challenges, four, four lead changes followed until Trainer went ahead 59 to 57. What happened next was simply lovely. The son of, the son of Jim Lovely, an assistant coach with the Cardinals, sophomore Alec has been around greatness of Trainor. He started as a water boy for the team in 2016 to 17 and followed when the Cardinals finished 26 to 1 and reached the state championship final. I've been playing this ball game with my dad and water boy in for as long as I can rem remember, Alex said. Just to be a part of going to state, it's just a really big thing. It means a lot to me. When he was open in the corner with acres of space as the time wound down toward the two minute mark, Lovely was at first confused, but he was calm and collected too. I was like, why am I so wide open? And then I shot. I was like, oh, what? that's going in. I just played it cool, he said. Trainer never looked back from there, earning their first trip to state since 2019 to 2020. I'm just so proud of our toughness. I think there were times where we lost our poise, or I lost my poise, said head, co head coach Scott Rucker, who was called for a technical foul with four minutes and 54 seconds left in the first half. But our kids were just tougher than all of that, he continued. We just kept telling them, you got 16 minutes to go to, to a state tournament, eight minutes to go to a state tournament, two minutes to go to a state tournament, and their toughness was just bigger than anything that was thrown at them tonight. Rucker said that this year's team was no different than the last three, two, of which lost in the sub-state final. We were good enough to make a state tournament, but we weren't better than Central Lion last year, Rucker said. No, there's nothing different. All the teams we've had are playing well at the end of the year, and they're playing tough in the air. And that's the hard part about coaching. Like, it just breaks my heart that I couldn't get them to, to a state tournament. Four seniors, all starters, Jace Tams, Carson Elwood, Aaron Emke, and Ethan Cons have grown so much. I think they would, well, they might agree with, is that we that weren't a very mature group of couple years ago when they were playing as sophomores, and maybe even most of the way through last year, but they've grown in their leadership, they've grown in their toughness, and those are all kind of cliches, but that's our program right there, Rucker said. It was an electric first quarter as Braden Hoban scored 12 points for the Thunder. The Cardinals briefly led in the quarter 8-6, to six, but trailed, or tied, the rest of the frame. Grandview pushed ahead 37-28 to 28 with a 9-2 to run, but Trainer answered as Tam scored 8 in the corner. In the quarter. The Cardinals finished the half on a 9-0 run to tie the game at 37 at the break. All five Cardinals had at least six points in the first half, led by Tams with 12. Grandview opened the second half with the first eight points, but Trainer stuck with it and cut into the de deficit on a pair of threes, 
from Emke and Collins to go into the fourth down by three. We weren't rebounding the ball very good. We needed to rebound the ball, Emke said. Our offense was great the entire time. From there, the Cardinals took the lead, and after Grandview briefly regained the advantage, they saw out a 71-63 win to punch their ticket to the well. We knew we had to pressure the basketball and kind of take them out of the stuff they have, because obviously they're way bigger than us, Rucker said. That was their advantage. We felt like our advantage would be pace and speed. And it wasn't always perfect, but it was always consistent. Our kids just played so dang hard. I was fortunate to be their coach. Their coach. Jace Tams led the Cardinals with 22 points, following, followed by Lovely's 16 and Emke's 11. It's our motto to be tougher than the other team, and even when they say, even when they go up, you just got to be mentally tough and keep fighting, Tams said. That's what we did that flipped the script. Shot after shot fell for the trainer senior, who Rucker calls the best scorer he's ever coached. There was no way this was going to be his last game. Didn't you feel that? Rucker asked rhetorically. He was on a mission to keep playing, and I hope, I hope we continue to see that. I think we will. Trainer will play in the quarterfinals of the 2A state tournament at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines on Monday, March 4th. The Cardinals will face West Burlington at 7.15 p.m. We haven't been there in a long time, and it feels great to go back and show the trainer pride, MK said. Next for sports, we will go over an article titled Eagles Clinch First Ever State Tournament in Routing of Hawks by Austin Heinen of the Nonpareil. There's a picture here with a caption. It says, the Underwood Eagles celebrate after an 81-50 win over South Hamilton that clinched Underwood's first ever trip to the state tournament. The Eagles have never in their history flown higher. Underwood's offense put on a clinic to fly past the South Hamilton Hawks at 81-50 to on Saturday night at Waukee Northwest High School. Defense turned into transition offense. 13 threes fell, and four players scored double digits for Underwood. Long story short, about everything went Underwood's way. It's a special moment, Eagles coach Brad Blum said. These boys earned this. They've played well all year. There wasn't an aspect of the game we didn't do well tonight. It was nice to see us get easy buckets in a pressurized environment. It really made things easier for us as the game went along. The Hawks broke the ice with the first basket, but Underwood answered with a 10-0 run and a 15-5 spurt to close the opening quarter. The Hawks cut the lead back to single digits, but the outside shooting for the Eagles started heating up, which helped Underwood outscore the Hawks 19-7 to close the first half. Our defense led to about half those points, Jack Von Von Van Fossen said, Van Fossen, that gets our offense going and the scoreboard just lights up. It just opens up from so much. Our defense led to about half those points, Jack Van Fossen had said. That gets our offense going and the, store, and the scoreboard just lights up. It just opens up so much. From the three-point line to drive into the basket, which then helps us light up the scoreboard even more. This is who we are, Luke Seidler said. We spread the ball around, and at any given night, any one of our guys can go up for 10, 20, or more points. It's the most fun any can have on a team like this. The Eagle offense kept their foot to the pedal, scoring 31 points in the third quarter to pull away as Jason Boothby sank three trays to help the Eagle offense boost their lead over 30 before the end of the quarter. 
Coach talks about throwing the first punch, and we were able to do that tonight, Boothby said. It felt like we couldn't miss for a while there, and that's always a fun feeling when the ball keeps going in. Underwood led by as much as 41 points early in the fourth quarter, as the reserves flew the Eagles to the finish line and the program's first ever trip to the state boys basketball tournament. Mason Boothby led Underwood with 21 points, Seedler scored 16, Garrett Lewitt added 11, and Von Vossen scored 10 in the Eagles' dominant victory. It's a special moment. These boys earned this. They've played well all year. Brad Blum, Eagles coach. Now standing at 24-0, the Eagles have reached new heights and will begin to prepare their first ever trip to the state tournament in Des Moines, which was this team's goal from day one. And together, this team has made history. This is incredible, Van Vossen said. The amount of people we got to come out here, folks making the drive is incredible. There's no words to describe it other than like our shirts say, we're making history. The team was handed white t-shirts after the game that said making history. First time in school history with the best teammates and coaches feels pretty special, Owen Larson said. We belong here. After all these years, we've put in hard work. Our chemistry is insane and everyone saw that tonight. It's just a great night for us, Boothby said. It's a great team win. It's the first time in school history and we're and doing it with guys I've played with for as long as I can remember, and it's great. We're going to state. All praise to the Most High. This is unreal, Seedler said. Every shot I've taken in my life has led up to this moment. It's the senior year, so we're going to give it all we've got in Des Moines. I can promise you that. Underwood will enter the tournament as the third seed and will play Unity Christian. There's only 10 teams that would make it that make it this far, so it's a pretty special feeling to be in that group, Blum said. It's an honor we don't take lightly, and we're excited to see what happens. The Eagles will take on the Knights at 12.15 p.m. Tuesday at the Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. The last article we'll have for sports today um, is titled Jackets Stung by Warriors. Links Fall to the Mustangs by Austin Heinen of the Nonpareil. The clock struck midnight on Thomas Jefferson's historic season on Friday night in front of a packed hive against Norwalk and TJ. A 12-0 second quarter run in defensive fourth quarter helped Norwalk beat Thomas Jefferson 69-52 in the 4A2 semifinals. You never want to end your season, but that's the hardest thing, Yellow Jackets coach Donnie Johnson said. It wasn't the outcome we wanted, especially after fighting all game and doing what we did all year. It's tough, emotions are running wild, but no one can take away what they did this year. They did an amazing job, and I'm proud of them. Norwalk struck first with the initial five points, but TJ answered with a 12-5 run to fly in front by a deuce after a fast-paced first quarter. The game remained tight until the final three minutes when the Warriors made their move in the form of a 12-0 run to close the first half. Jaden Calabro caught fire in the third quarter, sinking three trays to pull the Yellow Jackets back within two points on two occasions in the third quarter, and once more in the fourth. However, the Warriors held the Yellow Jackets to just seven points in the fourth quarter, as TJ couldn't get their offense started again. Multiple times we got it back within within a possession, and when we got it close, we just get the shot to break the ice, Johnson said. Norwalk got hot again, hit some shots again, and kind of broke it open, and we had to use all that extra energy to fight for baskets to get back in it, and it got tough. Jaden Calabro led Thomas Jefferson with 26 points. Though this was not the end Johnson and the Yellow Jackets hoped for, Johnson is proud of this team. 
for the success they've made and the foundation they've built for future teams. I told them how proud I was of all the things they've done, Johnson said. We talked about taking steps and laying a foundation, and this team did that. I'm really proud of them and everything they have accomplished. This team never gave up. They fought to the end. This is a group of fighters, and they've done great things this season. Thomas Jefferson ends its season with a record of 18-4. Our next article is titled St. Albert's Wedding Go, LC's Hannafan Named Region Coach of the Year by Peter Burtnett of the Nonpareil. Here there's a picture at the top of this article, um, captioned St. Albert, heading coach Dick Weddingell, center, watches his team from the sideline during the second quarter of the Saints' Class 1 regional final against Woodbine in Harlan on Wednesday, February 21st. Both Dick Weddingell and Chris Hannafan were named coach of the year in their respective regions by the Iowa BCA on Monday. Weddingell 1A number four St. Albert to a 22 to one record ahead of Wednesday's class 1A state tournament quarterfinal game. Last November, last number five, Bishop Gorgon at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines at 3.15 p.m. The Saintists also had two players on the 1A region 16, Ava Underwood and Ella Klesman. Underwood leads the team in rebounding 7.3 per game and is second in scoring 11 points per game behind Klesman, 12.2 points per game, who leads the team in steals per game at 2.1. Hannah Fan led 4A, number 6, Lewis Central to the state tournament, where they'll face number 3, Bishop Heelan at 5 p.m. Tuesday with a 19-4 record. The Titans were, presenting by, were presented by Lucy Scott and Brooke Larson on the 4A Region, 6, region 8 team. Scott is second for LC with 14.7 points per game, while Larson leads the team in scoring, 15.2, and rebounding, 6.9, and reigns second with two assists per game. In 2A Region 3, AHSTW's Delaney Goshorn and trainers Nora Kantz were selected. Moving on to the health section. This article is titled, Don't Get Sidelined, by Matthew Solon of the Harvard Health publishing. Pickleball continues to skyrocket in popularity. According to the Sports and Fitness Industry Association, the number of pickleball players in the United States increased from 3.5 million in 2019 to 8.9 billion in 2022, a 154% surge. Unfortunately, more playing leads to a higher incidence of injuries, especially among older adults, said Linda Murray, an orthopedic clinical specialist with Harvard-affiliated Spalding Outpatient Center Malden. In fact, a study in December 2021 issue of Injury Epidemiology found that more than 85% of pickleball injuries involve players ages 60 and older. Types of injuries. Because pickleball uses a lighter ball that needs less force and requires no overhead shots, it rarely causes shoulder injuries like those common in other racket sports. With pickleball, most injuries are strains and sprains in the legs and knees, said Murray. And research has found that men are 3.5 times more likely than women to have these types of injuries. The wrist is another common site of injury, with sprains and fractures caused by falls. Pickleball injury prevention is a threefold, performing lower body strength exercises at least twice a week, doing a dynamic warm-up before playing, and working on agility and balance. Here's a look at each. Lower body exercises. Murray recommends squats, lunges, and heel raises. 
They target all major muscle groups in the legs and incorporate movements that you would be performing while playing pickleball, she says. Plus, you can do them at home using body weight or light dumbbells. Squats. Squats use multiple muscle groups at the same time, says Murray. Although you may seldom perform full squat on the court, you want to strengthen and tone your leg muscles through a greater range of motion. This will enhance the leg power, improve mobility, and reduce joint stiffness and tendon injury. Lunges. Lunges work the muscles in the thighs and buttocks. There are numerous variations of lunges. Reverse, forward, side. That can train your muscles and joints to function in all directions. Lunges also challenge your balance and leg strength, says Murray. This is a powerful training approach for pickleball, as it will enhance your ability to get to the ball no matter which direction it's moving. Heel raises. This exercise helps build calf muscles. Pickleball courts are smaller than other racket sport courts, and there is much less long sprinting involved, especially when you play doubles. Instead, you need quick foot action and the ability to lunge for the ball, which requires power from calf muscles, says Murray. Warming up right. Performing a dynamic warm-up before playing can cut down on injuries. Warming up increases heart rate, loosens up joints, and increases blood flow to your muscles, says Murray. Priming your muscles with a good warm-up will get your body ready for the explosive movements of the sport. Do each of the following 10 times before stepping on the court. Squats, forward lunges, side lunges, arm circles, and jumping jacks. Agility and balance. For improving agility and balance, Murray recommends carioca exercises. Carioca is the Portuguese name for anything related to Rio de Janeiro. The exercises are called carioca because they resemble the Brazilian samba dance. Carioca exercises activate the muscles in our hips, knees, and ankles in a way that will prepare your body for the quick directional changes and lateral movements required of pickleball, says Murray. There are different variations of carioca. One that she, should, that she suggests for beginners is carioca walking. It works like this. Start with your feet hip-width apart, knees and arms slightly bent. Push up with your right foot and cross your right foot behind your left foot, touching it to the ground. Next, step with your left foot to the side so your legs are uncrossed, and you're back in the starting position, with your feet hip-width apart. Push off again with your right foot, and this time cross your right foot in front of your left, touching it to the ground. Step again with your left foot back to the side so you're again back in the starting position, and repeat this crisscross motion with your feet, gradually increasing the tempo as you feel comfortable, moving to the left for a specified distance or number of steps. Reverse the direction, moving to the right until you reach the starting point. Repeat the sequence two or more times. The next article is called The Spice of Life. Punch up your food's nutrition and its flavor with these enhancers. By UHN Staff. Environmental Nutrition. We know the importance of herbs and spices for enhancing flavors, but you know what, how they can enhance your health as well? They've been used for centuries for both culinary and medicinal purposes. Herbs like basil, oregano, and cilantro are the leaves of the plant, and spices like cinnamon and ginger come from the roots, bark, berries, flowers, or seeds of the plant. Turmeric has been used for centuries, especially in Indian culture, for culinary, medicinal, traditional, and religious purposes. The turmeric's vibrant golden hue comes from a substance known as curcumin. Curcumin is also what makes turmeric a medicinal cure-all thought to aid in oxidative damage, inflammation, brain, brain function, Alzheimer's disease, heart disease, cancer, arthritis, and depression. Curcumin fights free radicals, 
in two days. It blocks them and it also helps to increase our body's own antioxidant enzymes. Curcumin has such strong anti-inflammatory properties that it matches the power of some anti-inflammatory drugs, but without side effects. Cinnamon. Cinnamon is made from the dried and then ground bark of a tree native to Sri Lanka. It contains one of the highest levels of antioxidants compared with other common spices. Research shows that consuming cinnamon may help lower blood sugar levels by slowing the breakdown of carbohydrate in the digestive tract and by improving insulin sensitivity. Additionally, it has been shown to significantly decrease fasting blood sugars. Ginger. Ginger is a spice native to Asia and is closely related to turmeric. It is most effective at reducing nausea and vomiting due to seasickness, chemotherapy, and pregnancy. Ginger helps the digestive system by relieving the flatulence and by relaxing and soothing the intestinal tract. Garlic. Garlic is a part of the onion family, also known as the allium family. Hippocrates prescribed garlic for many medicinal purposes, and today you can take garlic supplements to help boost immune health and reduce blood pressure and cholesterol. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for Tuesday, February 27th. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 5 p.m. I'm Bailey Reese from Drake University in Des Moines. Thank you for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. What exactly is fossil water, and why have we consumed so much of it? No, it's not a new brand of bottled water imported from the days of dinosaurs. Fossil water came from melting ice sheets, ancient lake systems, and a generally wetter climate tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago. It percolated into porous rocks, which were then buried under deep layers of sediment, where it was sealed off from the surface, and there it stayed, until farmers discovered it. And in the second half of the 20th century, they started drilling wells into fossil aquifers and pumping like mad, turning sunny, dry places into acres and acres of green farmland. Crop supplies boomed, food became cheaper and more plentiful, grown in formerly parched places like California and Kansas, and shipped around the world for people like you and me to eat, ingesting fossil water with it. The trouble is, fossil water is a finite resource, and new studies suggest that many fossil aquifers may become depleted this century, so that we won't be able to rely on them any longer. This could mean that the crops that depend on them could become less plentiful and more expensive again. All the while, population will likely increase, the climate will likely warm, our demand for water will continue to climb, which means we'll have to adapt to the lack of fossil water just as we adapted to its discovery, this time with more efficient crops and farming methods and more efficient use. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.